all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome to the almost live edition of the SLS cast. That's right, this is episode 183, or as I like to call it, the Taiwanese boy band episode of the SLS cast. You see, this is, see, you see why I was laughing a minute ago? This is why I was laughing a minute ago. Alright, it turns out, it turns out that, um, there is a Taiwanese boy band. Um, and they are known as the 183 Club. And here's why. It's because the average height of the original five members combined together was about 183 centimeters. <laughs> <laughs> and with that wonderful bit of Taiwanese boy band knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us live from about... I don't know, three and a half feet away in sunny-slash-stormy Texas would be... Tim! And that, you said centimeters, right? Not I did. In, I literally said centimeters. As yes. in, like, fingernail centimeter, you know? About 183 of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing when they say boy band, they, like, literally mean boy? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think they should probably call them child band. <laughs> Or, or or Todd's. I don't know that. There's a lot of there's a lot of like child slavery out there, so they probably want to stay away from the world child anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's got to say about a culture when that is not misleading whatsoever, or actually for them it would be misleading due to the child labor issue. Yes. So uh, yeah, but um, that's fun. So. <laughs> Here we are, staring at each other yet again. Kind of awkwardly. Awkwardly, uncomfortable. Well, especially you made the ghost reference. Like, I was expecting you to pull out pottery to start. (laughs) That was in setup. That was supposed to be private, okay? That was was just for us. That was not for everyone to know. Um, But, of course, speaking of ghosts, doors are magically opening when they shouldn't be and should probably shut right now. And they do! <laughs> Look at that! Amazing! So, okay, we're as you can tell, we're doing semi-live, which means we're recording during the day, on the first day of summer vacation. So, the kids are home, uh, and they're currently in the sweat box, or as I like to call it, the master bedroom, where they are, uh, they have been plied with McDonald's and Coca-Cola, and are now forced, nay, chained, as it were, in comfortable sleeping bags, laying on the floor, watching, what did we find out it was, uh, Beethoven? Beethoven Part 9. Yeah, so yeah, Beethoven's big break yes. on the TV in the master bedroom where uh, there, there's a bathroom and, you know, a big king-size bed. And what do they have to do? Wait till five, no, four minutes into recording and then open the door. Can we talk about Beethoven for a minute? Sure. Why, do, why does awesome. Beethoven need a break when the original one was already his break? Therefore, it spawned nine movies. Well, I think this is, again, this is supposed to be the story of how the first movie got made. So even Beethoven has a prequel. 
Do you think they got the original dog? <laughs> <laughs> it was only 24 years ago, right? He could be alive. He could be the world's oldest dog. Dude, I think it's been longer than 24. I think I it's it been 1992. Was it 92? Yeah. Oh, um, maybe so. Well, you know, so thing. Charles uh, Grodin was the dad, and he was in his 50s when he made that movie. I'm pretty sure he was like 49, 50, 51, Holy 52. Crap. Yeah. Goodness gracious. And it means something that now, I, at least I think still, he took over Andy Rooney's position on 60 Minutes as being the old curmudgeon. Is he seriously on 60 Minutes now? He's been doing that for a while. I don't know if he still is, but three, four years ago, did Andy Rooney die? Yes, Andy Rooney did finally pass away. Yeah, I want to say he was like 112, but... I guess I missed it that the world went, was rejoicing in his passing. <laughs> I don't think anybody was rejoicing. I think at this point, people were just taking bets on how bushy the eyebrows were going to get. Right? <laughs> and they're going to keep growing in the grave, too. You know? <laughs> I just imagine, you know, there's just this big sheet of eyebrow covering his eyes. And he's like, now why do they have to have all that cotton inside of a pill bottle? I'll never know. You think if you go to his grave, they just have, kind of like JFK's Eternal Flame, they have Andy Rooney's, like, eternal, eternal ranting. Oh, oh, that too. Oh, like, sure. oh eternal record, yeah. yeah, but you think you're stepping on moss, but it's really his eyebrows growing. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good, though. Press this button. <laughs> Why is it called Black Monday? Why is it, you know... Uh, anyway. Um, Why is it called Black Monday? I can't remember. I think I just messed up the... Or Black Friday. No, it was Black Monday, but I totally screwed up. That was an In Living Color parody that Damon Wayans did, and he was parodying Andy Rooney. So Amos Rudy. <laughs> so I totally screwed up my own reference. How'd so, you get Damon Wayans mixed up with Andy Rooney? Because I got the I got the line. One one thing should give it away, if not five things. But there's definitely <laughs> one thing that should give it away. Uh, he wears larger shoes. <laughs> is that? Is that it? No, I got the joke. I got the gag mixed up because Andy Rooney really did do a thing. I remember seeing it when I was a kid on so much cotton inside of the aspirin bottle and how that was somehow misleading or something like you have this big huge bottle and it's you know but it's like 80 percent cotton why are you know why are they putting all this cotton in there and i just something he was bitching about and i remembered that so i was making that little why do they put so much cotton right and then somehow my wires got crossed and i remembered the damon wayans thing from in living color where he was Making like he was doing the Andy Rooney, Andy Rooney thing, but he kept making everything about race instead. Of, and so, why is it called Black Monday anyway? Uh, you know. And so, I got my jokes crossed, and now it's not funny anymore. It's just truly awkward as you're staring at me, going, "Stop, stop, stop, well, stop!" Do you with, your eyes, with your eyes, with your eyes, with my big bushy. I can't Andy see it though because your eyebrows are in the way. <laughs> Forgot to pin him back before the show. I apologize. <laughs> Do you think Andy Rooney and Mickey Rooney like hung out together? Like I, I cannot. They're like to me, they are polar oh, opposites. God. Like I could hang out with Mickey Rooney. I mean, I know Mickey Rooney. Uh, he was uh, physically abused, I think, by his wife. Isn't that what Something happened? Something like that. Yeah, but he's like a polar opposite to Andy Rooney. You know, it's kind of like Dick Van Dyke and and uh, is it Richard? Dan- uh, Dick Van Dyke's brother. Jerry. Jerry Van Dyke, you know. Dick Van Dyke, currently he's 
uh, 90? 90? Yeah. He and he, he's 90. embracing life. He's dancing around and doing, like, Mary Poppins pop-up performances at the Grove and shit in L.A. But then Jerry Van Dyke is, like, the old curmudgeon, like, 84, I think. So, like, six or seven years younger than his brother. And he just hates getting old. I don't... I Honestly, I think it's because... I think with Jerry Van Dyke... And I had the privilege of meeting Jerry Van Dyke. And he was one of the people that taught me never meet your heroes. Really? Yes. Um, oh, the, as in you meeting him. Right. You, you learn from that. Okay. I learned from that experience. Okay. It's not like he set you down and said, well, Matthew, we're... <laughs> I wish. I would have preferred that to what I got. Um, all right. Now... I think he's just eternally upset that he is forever Dick Van Dyke's younger brother. Yeah. Despite um, a very stellar career of his own and very funny, very comedic, uh, you know, and, and really talented. And anybody who is in our age group should at least have heard of the television series Coach. Yeah. Yeah. And that was definitely like a big uh thing for the 90s and and just a complete resurgence for Jerry Van Dyke and it was awesome for him. So um but I think he's just forever feels like here he is he's 84 years old and his goddamn brother can't kick off yet and he's just you know there's a good chance now that he's going to die before Dick Van Dyke uh his older brother does. But he had a a, a chain of shops of um Ice cream shops called Jerry's. Really? Yes. Here? In Texas. Uh, this was up in Flower Mound. Um, Flower Mound? Yes. Out by Louisville, north of Dallas. Oh. So. F- were there a lot of flowers in... Fl- or, were there a lot of there flowers in mounds? There, there was a... There or was, <laughs> is, I guess, because it's like... get off. There is a literal flower mound that the town is named after. And really? Get, yeah. Oh. It's not really all that special, but it's special for them because they named the town after it, I guess. I don't know. So, um, they, uh, yeah, so they had the Jerry's and he came down for, I don't know, a grand opening or some shit or whatever. And so I kind of, I got to meet him briefly and he was just kind of an asshole about it. And I later found out from the people who worked there, he was a complete dick to everybody. Like, he was just a complete asshole to everyone who worked there. And me, as a customer who, with a friend of mine who worked there, was the only reason I even got, you know, to really, cause I wouldn't have known he was there otherwise. And, uh, I, I won't say he was just out and out rude to me, but I was just, you know, I wasn't starstruck, but I mean, I was literally like, holy crap, this guy is like so much history, so much amazing television and movie and production stuff that he has seen and done. His brother's Dick Van Dyke, so I mean, God, the stories, I would just love to get a, just a story, you know? Yeah. And he just kind of was like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. All right, bye. Mm-hmm. Well, that was that was just fucking disappointing, man. <laughs> so I, I learned very quickly <laughs> that... that just, just don't meet your heroes. If you have like a Jerry Van Dyke t-shirt on, I Jerry did. Van I had, Dyke yeah, hat. Uh, yeah, and, and I had the uh, what's the what's the fictional school that Coach taught at? Right, I had the pennant from that fictional college. You did know? you really? No. Oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you could have been a big Coach fan. <laughs> so, uh yeah, I just um, yeah. So I, I learned quickly there. Don't meet your heroes. Just let them be. You know, let them stay on the pedestal in your head. And don't worry about it. Have I ever met a hero of mine? Well, you ran away from a hero of yours. 
Right? Wasn't that what that was? When? The, uh, oh, Cornetto's trilogy. Who directed it? Turn. Oh, uh, oh, um, uh, 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 Edgar Wright. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it's a new. <laughs> So at the the new Beverly, is it when I went to go shake his hand and yeah. the handshake thing? Yeah. yeah. Like, so you, whenever you meet somebody, you never want to overthink the handshake. <laughs> and you put so much stock in that handshake, and it doesn't work out. Yeah, it's that thing. So uh, Quentin Tarantino's new Beverly Theater, Edgar Wright was just about to come out with um, The World's End. So the, the, the last of the... And the Cornettos yeah, trilogy. trilogy. And so during the week before its release... He was curating a series of double features that inspired the making of The World's End, or the writing of The World's End. And so I went on a Monday and saw two movies. Uh, I think it was like Days Confused and American Graffiti. And another day it was like Westworld and uh, The Terminator and just stuff like that, you know, about, you know, well-written, robotic, futuristic, alien ship or whatever. So after one of the days, I'm pretty sure it would be the last day that I went... Uh, he was hanging out, uh, hanging out front row, and I happened to be kind of sitting next to him, and I thought, you know, I just want to tell him that I love his work, because I do love his work, and, uh, I always, I find enjoyment in his writing that I don't necessarily find in a lot of other, uh, super well-known, well-regarded actors, or, uh, directors. And so, I waited to the, to the very end, when we are all outside in front of the movie theater, his name and lights right above us, and I could just tell he wanted to go, but I just thought this one handshake will be great. I'll give him a nice, firm handshake, and we'll be on our way. I just want to say, you know, love your shit. Thanks for doing this. Had a good time. So right after he shook one guy's hand, he turned around, made eye contact with me, and right before I could say my thing, somebody interrupted me and got right in front of my face as his as his hand came up, grasped mine, and his he must have been sweating profusely, or better yet, I was probably sweating profusely, and his fingers kind of like awkwardly interlocked with mine. <laughs> And I was kind of holding on to his middle finger, and then my sweat kind of like, you know, like built up around his middle finger, and we did, it just kind of like this wet popping snap noise, you know, and the, it was really awkward. And the last glance he gave me was just like, a, what the fuck was that? And I just turned around and left. So never put stock in a handshake any, with for anybody. See? Don't meet your heroes. It just fucks it up. Don't meet your heroes. Although I have to say, if Kevin Smith wants to do this show, come on with it, man. I'll say yes. That's fine. Uh, anyway, well, that was interesting. We've got a really weird format for these next couple of shows because of the wonders of technology. You won't necessarily see how the breaks occur, but we won't have a, a new segment next week. We're not going to have a bonus segment this week. Um, and then we've really only got a total of three whole movies that we're going to be watching. Also, checked the email, and there was nothing in it. So you can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast and send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. Um, so, yeah, anything else fun and exciting? That uh, What are you going to be doing? Uh, other than uh, I get to take you to Howie's Tiki tonight. Uh, after Ooh, work. and meet the Howie. Yes, you're going to meet the Howie, whose name is Mark, but yeah. 
Why is it called Howie Steaky if his name is Mark? His middle name is Howie, and his grandfather is named Howie, and he named it after his grandfather. That's cool. I mean, it would not have the same pizzazz if it was Mark Steaky. Yeah. Howie does just kind of lend itself to sounding tiki-ish. Well, it's kind of like if barbecue places, like Bill's Barbecue works, but you don't want, like, Jose's Barbecue. Or or Tristan, right? You 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 know, one of those, uh, like, uppity... Names hipster, that, hipster, you know, Tristan's barbecue, right? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound good. You definitely, when it comes to barbecue, you want some Bubba, right? I mean, you know, it's still, yeah, Bill, Chuck, right? I mean, you know, mad, mad names. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you definitely don't want like, uh, I don't know, what's a, uh, Samuel, right? You know, that just doesn't sound right, you know. Sammy's barbecue. Well, Sammy's does kind of work. Sammy's barbecue, but Samuel's barbecue. Just a, yeah, I don't know. Um, but you do have news of the weird, though. I do have news of the weird, and we have a really interesting setup going on here in the house. So because um, I'm just going to be staring at you yes, while you are reading this. You you are indeed. So we're we're we. I've got my amazing computer rig set up that I get to stare at, but. It's being used doing other things, and now I'm pulling everything up on the old tablet here. So let me ask you a question. Now, let's assume for a moment um, that you really wanted a personalized license plate. Okay? Okay. Uh, For whatever reason. And say it was already taken. Okay. But you had an opportunity to buy it. Okay. How much would you pay for your ultimate license plate that someone had already taken? So you're buying, so if I really wanted, uh, you know, like, I don't know. Turd burger. Turd burger. Yes. T-R-T-B-R-G-R. <laughs> and, and you had it and you were like, you know, buy it off me type of thing, right? Um, even, uh, like, uh, no, let's say I died, and so the, the plate reverted back to the state, and now it's okay, up for, okay, okay, so, it's up for you to buy. So, last, the, uh, last episode, you asked me about the diamond weed thing. Yeah, that you would trade for a donut, Homer well, Simpson. Well, like but it I tastes said, so good, I'm so yummy and tasty. Well, I mean, if I already smoked the joints, then the donut, if it was a good one, would taste I, maybe good. This you know? is true. This so is what, true. What's it, what's it called when you pay the money, you automatically think it's probably significantly better? It's like the Stockholm Syndrome of food. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be some kind of name for it. I, I don't we'll know. Call it, we'll call it Donut Home Syndrome. <laughs> Do- donut Homes. <laughs> That's right, because it's like Donut Hole, but Donut Home, Stockholm. You know, if, yeah. if you're in a very bad part of town, they should have a donut shop called Donut Homes. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Or that would be my license plate name, Donut Homes. Okay, so <laughs> Donut Homes now is your license plate that you would like to get. And someone had it, it reverted back to the state for whatever reason, and now you have the chance to buy it. How much are you going to pay for that, sir? Uh, 30 bucks. 30 bucks. Well, let's say someone else is now willing to do it, and they go, oh, well, we'll just put it up for bid. Anybody can bid on it. Yeah. And now it's a bidding war. What's your maximum bid? How, how far will you go to, for, to fight for your right to get this license plate that says Donut Holmes. Uh, personally, thirty-five bucks would be my max bid. But if I was really into license plates and customization of said license plate, uh, maybe three hundred. Okay, three hundred, three hundred. Well, there is a gentleman, uh, and he wanted the license plate 
one. Just the number one. Was it was it one then space 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 or was it space 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 one in the middle of the license plate and space 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 one in the middle of the license plate. Yeah. Okay. So that's what he wants. Okay. And I purposely hid the title. How much do you think that asshole paid for the license plate that said one? Is that is it the United Emirates guy right there who probably bought it? Yes. Yes, as a hint, yes, it was a UAE businessman. Ah, okay. Well, I wasn't trying to profile, but I get okay. So I, well, I get it right. It's at pretty least. easy to tell. Yeah, I mean, he's wearing yeah. the chic thing, uh, and it's very clean and pressed. <clears throat> a very pressed chic. Yes. Uh, uh seven thousand. E seventy thousand. I'm I'm giving him the thumbs up because I want him to go more, higher, more. Give me 100, more. 100,000. Give me more, sir. 150,000. Dear God, you're not even 10% of the way there. Keep going, sir. 5 million. Yes, 5 million. Oh, seriously? <laughs> seriously. God dang, man. <laughs> 3.4 million pounds, which I did the conversion of, and it comes to just under $4.9 million. You realize you could put multiple children through school in, like, third-world countries and you, give them a true. life. You're true, but you, but you know why? Do you know why he did that? This is why. Quote! Because he's a fucking asshole. My ambition is always to be number one. End quote. <laughs> is there a picture of the guy's face? <laughs> I, I think he was smart to not... This picture. Um, I imagine we could look him up. Uh, his name is Arif Ahmed Al-Zaruni. That narrows it down. I'm, you know, well, I'm sure there's only, um, I'm sure there's probably only one UAE businessman matching this name. Uh, but yes, after a successful auction bid of 18 times the reserve price, Arif Ahmed Al Zaruni says, quote, my ambition is to always be number one, end quote. Yeah. The, uh, and this was one of, this was one of 60 sought after plates. Other plates were the most popular numbers consisting of 12, don't know why, 22, no idea why, 50, 100, 333, 777, 1000, 2016, 2020, and 99,999. <laughs> the auction made a total of AED, which I guess is their currency, fifty million. Ah, so that is sad. Like, some... there's nothing else to do in the UAE than bid on license plates. There, there's nothing cool about that. Where, where is the turd burglar or the butt muncher license plate? <laughs> so you're saying that I could easily go out and spend fifteen bucks on butt muncher as a license plate. True. But if I wanted something like seven seven seven, I would have to spend a lot. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Not even six 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 is like a sought after <laughs> you know, thing. Well, I don't know. I mean clearly these numbers uh have meaning to them, like twenty two. I don't know what the hell twenty two has to do with anything, but or three three three. That's just but hey, um, I guess if you have the money, yeah. Why, why, why send children to school and help people when you could spend five million dollars on a license plate that publicizes one. the number of wives that you have? Three, 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 three. <laughs> 
Well, maybe that was the 22. I don't know. All right. So that is my news of the weird, um, because I think it's really weird that someone's willing to spend that much God-forsaken money on a license plate. <laughs> um, and then I guess we can do news, right? Real news, yes. Yes. All right. Here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> So, I've done a lot of talking. Would you like to go first on the news? Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's going to require you to do a little bit of talking also. Oh, well, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Via, I'm probably one of the more reliable websites online that I've never pulled any movie news from, but I just think this is kind of interesting because in some way we can relate to it. Snopes.com, uh, your go-to source for all things... Uh, is it real? Is it real? There you go. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Is it legit? Is it legit? Yeah. And so apparently there's a thing out there about uh, kind of like how growing up in the night, well, at least growing up in the 90s for me, uh, 80s for you, McDonald's toys, people are saying that the old school kids toys, the uh, Happy Meal toys, were going to be worth something one day. Right. So everybody kept a big box of their old McDonald's toys because obviously compared to the ones now, they're more detailed and more interesting and kind of fun. Um, well, apparently, I remember as a kid thinking the same with the old school shell, clamshell cased Disney movies. And I didn't realize they were called this, but they are <laughs> part of the Black Diamond collection of the mm. Disney home entertainment canon there. The Black Diamond Collection. And they look like uh, this. I think as we all kind of remember. Um, just the only time they ever were released on the shell, clamshell, hardback case. I'm trying to find the... I'm trying to find the uh, Little Mermaid here. Yeah, it's there. It's on. Oh, the, there it is. Okay. So is this the one? I'll the have to go one. check. Is this the one? This the one with the penis on? Yeah, it? it's the wiener one. I've got the penis one. I do too. That's awesome. Okay, cool. It's in the next room, as a matter of fact. Hey, kids, go. Never no, no, no. <laughs> The room your kids are in. That's right. And it's conveniently located in the sweatbox master bedroom. That's right. That's right. For late night viewing. <laughs> uh, well, according to Snopes.com, Vault Bank. Several blog posts claim that the Black Diamond Collection Disney films on VHS were worth thousands of dollars, but the tapes are not rare or selling for much. Apparently, <laughs> this is written by Kim LaCapria. Um, and again, this is before like the special editions that came out in the later 90s, early 2000s. It's just the original VHS releases of these movies. Uh, again, I apologize for the weird formatting of this article because it is from Snopes. What's true? The verdict is mostly false. The Black Diamond Collection Disney VHS tapes are regularly listed at prices in the thousands on eBay by hopeful sellers. So on eBay, you can find these tapes for a lot of money. But what is false is that no one is actually bidding even close to what those people are asking for. For an example, 
Are the Black Diamond, asked somebody, VHS tapes really as valuable as people are claiming? There are articles circulating about these VHS tapes that are rare and could be worth thousands of dollars. On eBay, there are posts with said VHS tapes with ash or asking for uh, astronomical prices. The question is, is anybody actually buying those, or is it just a scam to get people to waste their time? Or maybe an advertising scam to get people to talk about Disney tapes. And... On eBay, Beauty and the Beast is going for how much is somebody trying to sell that Beauty and the Beast VHS tape from 1993, I guess. Uh, this Black Diamond. This Black Diamond. Ah, Black Diamond. Ah, <sighs> uh, let's see. I'm going to go with $21.95. That'd be $2,195 there. Tim. Twelve thousand eight hundred. What the shit? Twelve thousand bullshit. Origin. Wanna... <laughs> All right, let's go through the rest of the quiz. Oh yeah, that's right there. Holy fuck! Twelve thousand. Yeah, this is this guy. Uh, <laughs> what is this eBay thing? His eBay. I, I rip you off. <clears throat> is that his? Is that his eBay? Yeah. eBay t- handle there. Uh, but it's. But its origin, in late May of 2016, several blogs reported that people in possession of Black Diamond Collection Disney VHS tapes might have thousands of dollars worth of rare materials on their hands. According to eBay listings, the 1992 animated film Beauty and the Beast is going for just under $10,000. It's not because the live action it's not because it's the live action reboot starring Emma Watson that's coming out next year. This VHS is selling for so much because it's rare. There's another one here for 9,999, 5,000 and 9,998. Oh well, what which one was 5,000? Which is the bargain basement $5,000 product here? Uh this dude's. <laughs> is it the same copy of Beauty and the Beast? Yeah, no, it's the same thing, apparently. That, that's why, I mean, it's kind of jumping all over the place. A similar, uh, a similar piece article claimed that these collectors' items have become increasingly rare because of continual editing and altering for years after their initial release dates. And that's a good point. Uh, a modern directorial practice includes the adding, editing, altering, etc. films from their original theatrical version. Because of this, those original VHS tapes of Disney's classics are worth a pretty penny. Think $1,000 minimum. In addition, these original tapes that include scenes or songs that may have been cut out can be valued to collectors for various reasons as well. Listings on eBay for an original Beating the Beast VHS is currently set at nearly $10,000. Is it at least in mint condition, does it say? Yeah, it, like, it like, is. Like, like factory sealed or something? Um, No. I mean, yeah, they have the tapes out in the pictures. Uh, many such claims used eBay listings, not active bidding wars... As evidence of the stacks of cash Disney fans with VHS tapes might be sitting upon. But when we looked at eBay's advanced search, only items with a high bidding cost turned in a search. So nobody is actually going out and purchasing these. These just happen to be on eBay. Sorting from highest to lowest number, uh, uh, sorting from highest to lowest revealed a number of Disney Black Diamond collected tapes listed at between $1,000 and $20,000, but none had any bids, and scrolling through the pages in pages of clearly not rare <laughs> Black Diamond VHS tapes revealed only inactive auctions. It wasn't until reaching approximately the $25 range that any listings which involved active bidding appeared. 
And this is how ridiculous this is. You can actually go and buy 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 uh, Black Diamond VHS, which includes Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Bambi, Jungle Book, and whatever else for $25. So, if you are wanting to go, I mean, that's not saying that in the future these will become rare, because like it said, uh, for Little Mermaid, you can see the, the Wang on the cover. Uh, with mine, mine has a double inset. Yeah, I mean, mine insert. too. Yeah, I had the same one. And Oh, it has a double insert? Yeah, it has a double insert, so I have two. Oh, really? Yeah, so mine's worth <laughs> twice as much. $20,000! <laughs> Sir. But, I, but it's yeah. like, even with like Rescuers, my copy of Rescuers, you can still see the topless woman. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure, for yeah. like a frame or two. So I think stuff like that will become valuable. Now, will it be, you know... Ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars, probably not. But I, but I'm pretty sure in the next maybe twenty years, when some of these VHS tapes, those who are not taking good care of them and they start warping and break, right? Once it starts kind of like whittling down, maybe a couple hundred or maybe even a couple, you know, a couple, couple thousand, thousand, you know, sure, then it'll I be see, worth yeah. a little more. So if you're wanting to buy these tapes. Do it now, but only pay freaking 25 bucks. Right. And then transfer it digitally so that you have it like on a hard drive. Yeah, save. so you can go back and watch it whenever you want. Right. Exactly. And then, and then, you know, you can put the put the cassette in a pristine environment and, you know, factory seal or so. I don't know. Exactly. And yeah, and, and uh, guys, if you want to look more into this, Snopes.com, Vault Bank, and uh, just, I guess, look up in their search, Black Diamond Collection Disney... So once again, all the way, another reason to say it's never what it's worth. It's what somebody's willing to pay for it. Exactly. The definition of it. Right <laughs> <laughs> kind of like black, black diamonds. Right? Exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, let's see here. So first up from me, this is uh, from ScreenRant.com by way of Chris Agar. Star Wars Rogue One reshoot details revealed? Question mark. Ooh, and it's been updated uh, in the last three days. Well, I guess four days, because this article is from the 2nd of June. Um, but uh, yeah, let's see here. The update says that, oh, Christopher McQuarrie, uh, who I believe is the director, has denied involvement with the Rogue One reshoots. That's right, folks. The Star Wars fan community was recently thrown for a loop when oh, it he's was... He's a writer. Writer. Thank yeah. you. Yes, writer. Um, was thrown for a loop when it was revealed that this December's Rogue One, a Star Wars story, would be undergoing reshoots over the summer. Initial rumors claim that Disney executives were in a state of panic following a poor test screening, but later reports stated that no audiences had seen the film. It's said that the reshoots are being done to lighten Rogue One's tone making it more in line with A New Hope, as well as to add in a cameo for the newly minted young Han Solo, Alden Einreich. Einreich. Or Ehrenreich, rather. There we go. Uh, reshoots are commonplace in Hollywood and are a part of uh, just about every tentpole production, but many viewers were concerned that this indicated Rogue One was in a bit of trouble. After the first wave of headlines, the current mood seems to have calmed down, with some saying that the reshoots are to elevate a good movie to a great one. And whatever else let's see here um 
According to Making Star Wars, a definitive source for updates concerning the modern films, the Rogue One crew estimates they are reshooting roughly 40% of the movie. They will be working six days a week for a period of eight weeks, and 32 sets have been built for this phase of the production. Um, Let's see here. I was going to look here. It says here, the article, even though apparently Christopher McQuarrie has denied any involvement in the reshoots, this article does state that the primary reasoning for this boils down to the most recent draft of the Rogue One screenplay, which came from Oscar-winning scribe Christopher McQuarrie. Apparently, McQuarrie's take on the script wasn't finished during principal photography. Director Gareth Edwards had already filmed most of the movie, which is interesting when you don't have a script to work with, and whatever revisions came through led to the final product feeling uneven. Making Star Wars says that McQuarrie's work is considered a marked improvement from what Edwards was working with originally. McQuarrie will be with Edwards during the reshoots to ensure the two that the two remain on this quote on the same page and quote regarding this latest version of rogue one uh, apparently that's the part that was inaccurate at that time so what do you think there tim all this reshooting sounds like nearly 40 percent of the movie being reshot um well a lot of to be fair a lot of movies go through reshoots um but i don't think uh, not really as extensive as as this. It sounds like they're wanting to lighten up the tone of the movie. So I I think Gareth Edwards wanted it to be more of a, I guess more more uh, serious. And because J.J. Abrams with Episode seven, seven, it was more lighthearted. And I mean, I mean, I mean, I think compared to the original trilogy, it's definitely more lighthearted. I guess though. I mean. The question... And Gareth Edwards wants Rogue One to be more, like, you know, darker, since it's dealing more with, like, these band of... Well, yeah, that's the whole know. thing, is that uh, many... Uh, what is many banthas or whatever the hell it was? I can't remember. Um, it's a whole group of people that die on a suicide mission to go and get the plans for the Death Star to Mon Mothra and, and the team so that they can go and blow up the Death Star. How is this a happy movie? I don't know. I mean, it's like literally all, all you need is one person to make it out, right? Uh, and maybe not even then because it was like a data transmission, right? And so I'm kind of like, when I read that, you know, oh, we want to lighten it up like a new hope. Um, did, did you miss the point of the movie? I don't, so I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure I like, uh, you know, I guess it doesn't really matter what I like. They're going to make their billions of dollars anyway, so... Yeah, it's just like you hire a director, and I think we were talking about this before last week. I don't remember why or what what kind of prompted this. You hire a director to make a movie, like Gareth Edwards. Godzilla, his remake of Godzilla, wasn't the best movie, but I really liked how he handled the action and the stuff with Godzilla. And it was darker, more entertaining, and how he set it up, the set pieces were, were great. And I think he wanted to bring that aspect to the Star Wars trilogy. And the thing is, if you hire these type of directors that are known for uh, creating great movies like that, or adding their own spin to movies like that, you, you, they should be able to add their own take or, you know, shoot the movie that they want to shoot. Because if you have too many people, like too many producers or too many writers or too many studio folk meddling with it, then it's not going to be the director's vision. It's just going to be another studio Movie. Oh yeah, we were talking about Marvel stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So no, I agree. I, I just yeah, it's like why would you hire this guy if you didn't want him to do 
the stuff that it's like, hey, this is what I'm going to bring to the table. That sounds great. Now that you're done, let's redo half of it. Yeah, exactly. So, anyways, all right, what else you got for us, sir? All right, I'm going to go through two pieces of news real quick. Uh, for all you filmmakers out there or who want to become filmmakers, Warner Brothers Emerging Film Directors Workshop is open for applications. This is written by Patrick Hypes. Uh, I'm just going to kind of go through a little bit of it. This is via Deadline.com. Update with applications open. Warner Brothers Pictures said today, June 1st, it has opened the application process for its new Warner Brothers Emerging Film Directors Workshop. The Talent Incubator is designed to give access and voice to new and unrepresented talent and will do uh, and will to showcase their work to the film community after a nine-month intensive fellowship at Warner Brothers. Uh, Unveiled in March, Warner said as part of the workshop, participants will be partnered with a Warner Brothers Pictures executive mentor as they work through the entire... As they work through the entire film, <laughs> is that a robot you have? It is a robot I have. Uh, we'll be partnered with a ro- uh, Warner Brothers Pictures executive mentor as they work through the entire film production process from pitch to final cut and premiere. Five filmmakers will be chosen for the inaugural class with registration to open to all applicants and winners to be announced before the end of quarter three. Uh, the filmmakers will, will work with physical production to prep, create a budget, cast, shoot on the lot, and edit with a full post-production process. Warner Brothers will cover all production costs and salary for filmmakers for the duration of the fellowship, which culminates in a film festival showcasing the director's work to be held for agents, managers, producers, and film executives. Um, I think that's pretty awesome. Like, if I had more of a drive and uh, the ability to... Uh, take time out to, you know, do this type of thing. I totally would. Uh, if you're younger, if you're more into this type of thing and you are fucking dedicated to the craft of film and that's the job that you want or that's what the career you want to be, be a part of, do this. If you, if you have the drive and you want to do it, go check it out. Uh, I really don't know where to go for the application, but do check out the deadline article. Run Warner Brothers Emerging Film Directors Workshop open for applications. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. But then, back to Ghostbusters. All news lead to Ghostbusters. Uh, since we've been t- talking a lot of... Uh, not We haven't been talking about a lot of shit. Or talking shit about it a lot. The press behind the new Ghostbusters has been relatively negative. But according to... to put it mildly. Yeah, to put it mildly. <laughs> but according to SlashFilm.com, Dan Aykroyd took to Twitter to praise the new Ghostbusters movie after... Participate or after watching uh, an advanced screening of it via Slash Film, Dan Aykroyd praises the new Ghostbusters as Melissa McCarthy responds to backlash. Um, well, according to Dan Aykroyd via his Facebook, he says this. As originator of the original, saw test screening of new movie, apart from brilliant, genuine performances from the cast, both female and male, it has more laughs and more scares in the first two films, plus Bill Murray is in it. As one of millions of fan, uh, as one of millions of man fans and Ray Sanchez, I'm playing, I'm paying to see that and bringing all my friends, exclamation mark. And then Melissa McCarthy told uh, the Guardian, uh, "We don't really need to go into that." But yes, that is what Dan Aykroyd said. He he is giving the movie a lot of praise. What do you think about this, Matt? Does this does this 
provide hope for all the naysayers. Because we did have a James Cameron pretty much got bought off by Paramount to give a lot of praise to Terminator Genesis when that movie first came out, talking about how he loved it because it so reminded him of Terminator Judgment Day. Hmm. I would have to say that I think that Dan Aykroyd is the wrong is the wrong original cast member to get behind you. And it's not because he doesn't have the right or he shouldn't have a say. It's because he has been so desperate to see any form or fashion of Ghostbusters come back that I think he sees what he wants to see. And... Or even if it wasn't good, he would say it was good because he just so desperately wants for this to succeed so that Ghostbusters carries on and carries forward. And it's almost like you can't see the forest with all the trees in the way. People already know it's a classic. People already love it for what it is. Dude, you made it. It was already number... I don't know what more can you ask. You know, you you had the golden fleece in your hands. Why are you, you know, setting it on fire and dancing on its ashes? Um... I think if maybe we got, like, let's say Sigourney Weaver, um, maybe even Bill Murray. Um, I don't Rick, know if Bill Murray Rick, has seen it, but he has come out saying that he did support the movie. Um, well, even still, though, I mean, but um, maybe Rick Moranis, right? Um, hell, even Ernie Hudson, I don't care. But someone who has not been so overwhelmingly vocal and proselytizing this piece that this picture for 20 years right to come out and say no guys i've seen it and it's good that's what we need um i just i think he is just so desperate for it to be good that he wants it to be good and says it's good i don't think he was bought off but i just think that you know it's his baby and from way back when right yeah i know that he didn't have much to do with this now but yeah uh, yeah. So that's that's what I think on that. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's see here. Second to last piece of news for moi. From Vox.com by way of Aha Romano. A guy trained a machine to watch Blade Runner. Then things got seriously sci-fi. Yes, last week... Warner Brothers issued, and this is definitely last week because this is from June 1st. Uh, last week, Warner Brothers issued a DMCA takedown notice to the video streaming website Vimeo. The notice concerned a pretty standard list of illegally uploaded files from media properties Warner owns to the copyright to, including episodes of Friends and Pretty Little Liars, as well as two uploads featuring footage from the Ridley Scott movie Blade Runner. Just a routine example of copyright infringement, right? Not exactly. Warner Brothers had just made a fascinating mistake. Some of the Blade Runner footage, which Warner has since reinstated, wasn't actually Blade Runner footage. Or rather, it was, but not in any form the world had ever seen. Instead, it was part of a unique machine-learned encoding project, one that had attempted to reconstruct the Philip K. Dick android fable from a pile of disassembled data. In other words, 
Warner had just DMCA'd an artificial reconstruction of a film about artificial intelligence being indistinguishable from humans because it couldn't distinguish between the simulation and the real thing. <laughs> Mind blown. Yes. So what, what this was here, um, it says, Terence Broad is a researcher living in London and working on a master's degree in creative computing. His dissertation, uh, called Autoencoding Video Frames, sounds straightforwardly boring until you realize that it's the key to the weird tangle of remix culture, internet copyright issues, and artificial intelligence that led Warner Brothers to file its takedown notice in the first place. Broad's goal was to apply what he called, uh, quote, deep learning, end quote, a fundamental piece of artificial intelligence that uses algorithmic machine learning to video. He wanted to discover what kinds of creations a rudimentary form of AI might be able to generate when it was taught to understand real video data. So basically, it's able to, the, the computer or the machine looks at X amount of clips and pieces of footage knows that it is a particular set of data, but that it's not correct. And subjectively looking at this, it's trying to put it back together again. So it is literally making observations, reviewing, and then piecing together what it is to make something out of it and literally make sense from it, right? And it got it so close to right that it it filed a DMC takedown from another piece of software that's designed to look for anything that remotely resembles the original product. So we now have the the the, the AI is here to take over the world is pretty much what is happening now. We've lost so what do you think? This is pretty fascinating stuff. It's I, awesome. I, I definitely wanted... think you should re read the whole article. The article goes on. It's got comparisons of Blade Runner versus what this guy was doing. So the video is the video back on yes. Vimeo? Yes. It is. Okay. So the videos are back up. Um, you can see uh, the auto-encoded trailer with a side-by-side -side comparison. So you can literally see what the original trailer looked like versus what the AI actually did. Um, so you can see all sorts of cool stuff regarding this. Um, I highly recommend Vox.com. Um, a guy trained a machine to watch Blade Runner, uh, and again, Aha Romano, check it out. That I did not even read the whole article. It's really, really fascinating. So, what secret covert company does Aha Romero work for? Uh, I don't know. Aha Romano is just the writer for. Oh, Aha. I thought it was the name. Of Aha. <laughs> A J A. So I'm just going with Aha, unless it's Aja. I guess that could be. Is that Aja. the secret? Uh, UAE uh, Sheik who yes. lost the license plate. Yes, yes it was. <laughs> That's his code name. <laughs> All right, my next piece of news. Um, another Sony piece of news. <laughs> Frowny face. Sony Pictures faces legal spat over the Emoji Movie. Matt <laughs> Matt's most anticipated movie of 2018 or whenever the fuck it's supposed to come out. Via the HollywoodReporter.com, written by Kim Masters, the studio's going full speed ahead on the film dated for 2017. Only problem, a former video game executive who lives in Germany might have all the merchandise trademarks for it. I don't know how they missed that, but okay. Marco Hughes, H-U-S-G-E-S, Hughes, 
was on vacation in Croatia in 2013 when inspiration struck. Quote, for some reason, emoji became or came into my mind, end quote, says the German former video game executive. So he was the first to file for commercial trademarks for the film or for the world around the world in a trademarks for the... Oh, ha. Trademarks for the word around the world in a first-come, first-served competition. Emoji were created by mobile phone operators in Japan in the late 1990s. Old school with the paper flipping. Hughes 45, doesn't own the rights to the wildly popular digital icons on phones and social media, but as founder of the Emoji Co., he has also created... More than 3,000 of his own icons and trademarked and licensed them for use on any array of merchandise. Hughes also trademarked such titles as Emoji Planet and Emoji Town. So Hughes says he was surprised when Sony Animation announced the Emoji Movie, dated for August 2017. Sony, which just released the Angry Birds film based on the mobile game, bought the project last summer based on a pitch by Eric Siegel and Anthony Leondis. The latter is to direct the Michelle Ramo Ramo Cuyati with uh, with Michelle Ramo Cuyati producing. Sorry. In October, Sony filed applications for dozens of trademarks in connection with its project, but those were rejected in February. Yet, on April 12th, Sony Animation President Christine Belson talked up the Emoji Movie to theater owners at Cinecom, saying, Inside your phone, there's a secret world, Emoji Valley, where the industrious emoji live and work, end quote, she said. Retainers, uh, wait, Sony's trademark application in the U.S. has been rejected, while... Ours are all registered and actively in use, says Hughes. Also, Hughes is planning his own entertainment uh, initiative. Quote, this was always the logistical step, end quote, he says. First, get in the marketplace and then TV series, web episodes, and movies, end quote. He has teamed with producers Roy Lee of the Lego movie and Adrian Ashkari from Hitman, Says Lee, quote, emojis are such an iconic brand worldwide that if we develop a great story, support it, I believe whatever we create has as much potential as other movies based on well-known properties such as Ninja Turtles, Minions, and of course, Lego, end quote. Hughes declined to outline the specific steps he might take in the event that the emoji movie proceeds. Uh, and the article goes on, uh, for there, basically, a Sony spokeswoman says that the studio is undeterred and moving ahead, saying that we have full confidence in our rights as we make the film we've always intended to make. End all quotes there. So it kind of sounds like this Hughes guy didn't really have plans to make an emoji movie until Sony bought the rights to make an emoji movie Though his their rights didn't really uh, include the rights to the name Emoji and Emoji Valley, which he doesn't even own the rights to. But I guess Emoji Valley sounds a lot like Emoji Town and, <laughs> and, and Emoji you know something. And, and the worst part of it all is I still could not fucking care less. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not a movie that needs to be made. Well, for one thing, Angry Birds, <clears throat> though it has done... Okay, it's not a box office success. So it goes to show you that Angry Birds, I mean, the movie was 
Well, three years be, too late. Oh, yeah, I was going to say there's at least three, if not four years too late. They needed yeah. to get this done when it exploded, not four years, three, four years later. So. Yeah, but it's kind of like, I mean, I thought we learned this by the Super Mario Brothers movie, you know? Just because you have a popular video game doesn't automatically mean, you know, it, it, it'll make for a great movie. I mean, just because we have the Lego movie, and because the Lego movie was in some way cool, you know, and mm-hmm. well, and, you know, done, you know, done in, in a very interesting and unique way, you can't, like, do the same shit and make your own version of a Lego movie mixed with Inside Out and create an emoji movie. You know, I, I think people are just getting tired of that shit, personally. Well, I mean, once again, it's going to come down to uh, voting with your wallet, right? I mean, don't go see it. Yeah, if no, it doesn't exactly. make any money. They won't make any. They won't make any more. So, yeah. or at least any more of that. But, anyways, all right. Well, this is the last piece of news for me because we have definitely done the news, uh, done a lot of the news. Uh, let's see here from EW.com by Joey Nolfi, Robert De Niro, quote Joe Pesci, keep saying go fuck yourself to the new Martin Scorsese movie. Uh, End quote after colon. I don't know. The actors reunited at the Guys' Choice Awards to celebrate Casino, their last film with the iconic director. Uh, let's see here. Joe Pesci has only starred in six movies in the past 20 years, and according to the Oscar-winning actors, Goodfellas co-star Robert De Niro, even iconic director Martin Scorsese can't convince him to come back for more. In a rare public appearance, Pesci joined De Niro on stage during Saturday's Guys' Choice Awards. This article does come from June 5th. Uh, where one of the pair's cinematic collaborators with Scorsese, 1995's Casino, was inducted into the Guy's movie, Guy, I'm sorry, the Guy Movie Hall of Fame. During the induction speech, De Niro reflected on making the film, but stressed his desire, but stressed his desire to get back to work with his casino crew on Scorsese's upcoming directorial return to the monster genre, The Irishman, which Pesci has reportedly declined to join. Uh, let's see here. De Niro says, following quote, Marty and I are planning to get back together for a movie I think will be a future Guy Hall of Fame entry. That is, that is if Joe has any more fucks left in him. So far, all he keeps saying is, go fuck yourself. End quote there. After a short pause, Pesci responded, quote, thank you, Bob. I think you insulted me just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's okay. I am used to it. Anyway, I would like to say thank you for the honor, end quote. Um, So, I guess De Niro's got his work cut out for him to get Pesci on board? Or you think Pesci's just happy to be retired? Or I think Pesci is happy to be retired. And I, I can't blame him. I mean... He did Casino and Goodfellas, and he's done many of other other movies, but I think those are kind of like the epitomal Joe Pesci movies, right? Casino and Goodfellas. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And and, I mean, and, and Home Alone, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But like those are like those are perfect. I mean, he had the kid circuit down and the adult guy circuit. You know, that's and perfect. lethal weapon. Oh yeah, and lethal weapon. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't blame him for wanting to stay retired, but because of this little banter thing they got going on. That's why I kind of want to see him come back, you know? I do. I think, okay, you know what? I, I honestly, I mean, they are getting on in years. And um, and I totally respect if he wants to stay retired, retired. But I think, you know, 
until he until he dies or until his mind is gone or whatever else. Every four or five years, if he wants to come out and do a Scorsese film, right? Come on, just come out. It's kind of like it's kind of like I want to be a Walmart greeter for the weekend, right? You yeah. know, you don't want to do it all the time. But it makes you feel nice, gets you out of the house a little bit, say hello to some people, right? And then go back home, right? Oh fuck it, I don't need you. I'm retired. I quit. Do that, you know. But I mean, but then you kind of wonder about the movie itself. Like, will he just be playing the same kind of wise, I tough guy? I don't think so because. Um, I think his age is going to come through on this one. Yeah. I mean, he is in his seventies. Yeah, he's like, he's up so there. Yeah, I don't. I mean, he's not going to be able to walk around beating the piss out of people anymore. Yeah, I mean, so it's going to have to be a much more subdued role. Yeah, which I think would be really neat to see, especially from uh, his vantage point and everything there. So, anyways, that's my news. That's it. I just wanted to mention the new Spider-Man movie and how... Or not the new Spider-Man movie. The new Spider-Man movie that could have been. Oh, Spider-Man yes. 4. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 4. Uh, guys, you can go to... Uh, let's see. I have articles from... Uh, actually, both these are from Cinema Blend. Uh, just look up Sam Raimi or Spider-Man 4. And you can look at cool concept art of what the new movie or what you know the follow-up to Spider-Man 3 would have been like. Because... I, I really liked what they had to say. I think it's the art uh, art director um, where he said this, quote, It would have been one absolutely kick-ass movie. Seriously, we were working on some crazy cool stuff because everyone from top to bottom felt that Spidey 3 was a bit of a missed opportunity, and we all really wanted to help Sam ta- uh, take Spider-Man 4 to another level so he could end the series on a high note. And in these articles... Uh, you know, you see, get, you get to see pictures, but you also get a taste of what the next one could have been like. Uh, for example, they wanted an opening montage of Spidey taking down classic 60s Spider-Man villains, not in updated costumes, but wearing their original costumes. Because they were B, C, D level, you know, comic book villains that they thought no, I mean, there's no point to, you know, make a main villain. So it just would have been cool for them to do something like that. Uh, so yeah, but do check it out. And, uh, again, that was cinnamon, cin- cinnamon blend, <laughs> cinemablend.com. <laughs> cinnamon blend. And just look up Sam Raimi or Spidey 4 to look more into that. And that is my news. All right. Well. Then moving directly from the news and skipping our bonus segment because we're not doing that this week, we are heading directly into the movies. All right, and this week's movies are. Just one. This week's movie is <laughs> Alice Through the Looking Glass. And that, of course, is the 2016 American fantasy adventure film. It's uh, directed by James Bobbin and written by Linda Wolverton. And let's see here. And, of course, it's produced by Tim Burton, but not along with several other people. Um, of course, stars Johnny Depp, Anne Hathaway, Mia Wasikowska, um, Reese Iffens, Helena Bonham Carter, Sasha Baron Cohen, Alan Rickman, briefly, Stephen Fry, briefly, and, um, yeah. Who's Stephen Fry? Cheshire Cat, wasn't he? Oh, was that Stephen Fry? I 
Could have sworn it was. Oh, pot, you know, you're, I mean, you're probably absolutely right. Let's I just see. didn't realize it. Yeah, Stephen Fry is the Cheshire Cat. Yes. All right. So here we have the long-awaited sequel, said no one ever, to 2010's extremely successful but much divided um, in terms of critical and audience acclaim, Alice in Wonderland. Um, all right, so I want—I was actually look, originally looking forward to this because I had never seen Alice in Wonderland. I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater because of work or whatever. I don't know. Never got a chance seeing it. I had people who was telling me it was amazing, people who were telling me it was great. And so when Alice Through the Looking Glass came up, I was we were talking with Tim, and I was like, hey, this sounds like a good opportunity because then watch the movies or whatever. And it's like, okay, whatever. It's easy for me because I'll be traveling. And I'm like, all right, sounds good. So I finally got to see Alice in Wonderland. And I have to say I'm walking away from that one kind of meh. Um... Uh, just real quickly on it, I can see why people liked it because it was out at the time of Avatar and visually it's very, you know, amazing and everything. But substantively, I can't really say that it's it's all there. I would just quickly give that one a 2.75. Um, better than okay. Can't really say I liked it though. Moving into this one where we find ourselves picking up approximately three years uh, after the first movie, although if I remember the dates right, it's one year from the end of the previous. I don't remember how it's all supposed to work out. Anyway, we have Alice, who's the captain of the ship that she left off on, and uh, she uh, does the impossible and escapes from the pirates, and she comes back. Uh, of course, she's been gone for a long time and hasn't exactly been keeping everybody abreast of her actions. And things have kind of fallen apart without her. And not just in real life, but also in Wonderland, where she must go back uh, and fix the Mad Hatter. And how is she going to do that? Time travel! Because it's already Wonderland, so fuck, why should anything make sense, right? Um, Alright, so here's, the, here, here's where I come down on this movie. Um, I think, again, visually... Amazing, really well done. Can't uh, harp on that. Although I just don't like the way they did uh, the Red Queen. I, I don't know the head thing. I get it; it's an artistic deal. I, um, but at the same time, I don't know. It just never looked right to me. Well, it's the same thing with the Mad Hatter. His family looks normal, but somehow he has a white face. And yeah, so yeah. I, I yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly how that. So, whatever. Again, because who cares, right? <laughs> it, it doesn't need to make sense because Wonderland, right? So, I once again, it's visually good, but the story just doesn't do it for me. Um, it, it, it drifts between sentimentality and um, cohesive. And, but, but neither makes the other work, especially even when you're trying to forego the concept of anything else in terms of, well, it's Wonderland. Nothing really has to make sense. Um, you can only push the envelope in terms of believability and suspension of disbelief only so far, especially when you're trying to make that jive with things that are happening in, in the quote unquote real world for Alice. 
Um, the parallels that it draws in terms of family and um, getting to the roots of why families are the way they are in certain circumstances, I mean, that's okay. It did an all right job with that. But again, nothing that really blows you away. Um, nothing that really makes it feel like, holy crap, what an amazing experience. Um, so, you, I don't know. Most people will probably think it's all right if that. It did not do well by the critics on Rotten Tomatoes. The audience score is not that great either, though it's better than the critics score. At the end of the day, I give this one a 2.75 again. It's better than okay. I don't hate, I don't feel like it was a waste of time to have watched it, but I think they've learned their lesson. Disney has learned their lesson and there won't be any more. And I don't think anybody's going to feel bad about it. So 2.75 for me. I can see them doing a, a reboot in another like 10 years oh, or so. No! <laughs> oh, God, no. <sighs> But I, I need to say... Wait, wait. Is it going to be live action or animated? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, the thing <laughs> Which is Which way are they going to go? I think it could be... I mean, they could do live action as in uh, Alice being live action, but then everybody else being more animated. But animated in a way to where the animation looks... Like, it looks real, but there's something slightly off. And I'm not talking like Don, Donnie Je- God damn it. Johnny Depp as Mad Hatter with his... So you, you know, want... So you literally want Uncanny Valley? Is what you're... You, you want that Uncanny Valley to exist for this imagined reboot if they did it? If they... Yeah, I think so. Because I like the idea of... You're able to make... I like the... I like the trippy. I like the psychedelic trippy Alice in Wonderland. That is, to me, the cartoon. Um... I'm not too super familiar with the Alice in Wonderland book, so I don't know how much for the Tim Burton movies, how they were kind of pulling from it, or how much they weren't. But I liked how in the original movie, in the cartoon, how it felt like she was on in, in, in an adventure. And as the movie progresses, Alice doesn't realize, like, is she in a dream like Wonderland? I mean, she thinks she's in a dream, so she's taking all these risks and taking all these chances that otherwise she might not take in the real world. But at the very end, will she be able to go home or will she not? And that, and to me, that realization, it kind of hit, hits home in a way because, like, is she going to be forever stuck in a dreamland? We all want to escape to our dreamland and live there forever, but is that ideal or not? You know, like, we need real-world problems to live. I mean, I think that's what kind of makes us human, is dealing with those problems. True, but let me ask you this, then. The scene with, with in, in the, uh, I guess, in, in the sanitarium, right? Um, do you feel like that was a necessary evil or a necessary plot device, a necessary real-world problem? to interject into the movie because I sure shit didn't. I thought it was well, just kind of dumb. I, I think if, if it was handled differently, and this is what you were mentioning, we were talking about this last night, you know, like if, like you knew it was going to happen. Right. And they just threw it in there. And I felt the same way. Like they could have played with it more. But if you're throwing in the loony bin, the movie has to take on a different tone than all of a sudden they're time traveling and... The timekeeper guy who you think is a bad guy, you know, at least the trailers made him look like a bad guy. Right. Then you're supposed to feel for him, you know, and he's goofy. And then his bumbling, robotic, steampunk, you know, henchman is, you know, goofy as well. So there's nobody that you can take seriously. And then they throw in the idea that, you know, the, the aspect of her being possibly crazy or not. 
and you can't really take that seriously, so right. there's no reason to throw it in there, you know? And mm. and that's the thing, is that with a movie like... If you went down the road as in you're not getting too comfortable with people's backstory, and you can play with her going on an, on an, uh, on an adventure, and obviously Tim Burton made the Mad Hatter a big character for the first movie because it was Johnny Depp. And right. you had to give... And another thing we were talking about, like what you said... They had to give Johnny Depp something to do. And so in Through the Looking Glass, he shows up at the beginning, and then there's a stretch of time when he's not in the movie when she's doing her time traveling thing. Right. And well, then he pops up at the end. Right. Well, there's a couple of brief scenes where he's there, but he doesn't take but um he's not yeah, he's definitely not the focal point and he just kind of bookends it. But I think for me, what really it what it really boils down to is what again with what we were referring to last night is Tim Burton can be imitated, but not duplicated. And right. I think that it should have been Tim Burton doing this, not uh, James uh, Bobbin. So, I don't know. I, well, I, I, but I interrupted. I, I mean, where, where, where were you going with that, sir? Yeah, and it's just what kills it is the overall vision and the backstory. I mean, you don't want to veer too far away uh, from, like... From, from being too familiar with the characters and the story that's going on. You know, like the, like the Hatter being mad and zany. He's not at all like this in Through the Looking Glass or in the, uh, or in the, in the, in the first remake movie. You know, like you kind of see his zaniness and craziness, but he's always, he's played like, he's kind of like, the I don't know how bad this is, but like the friend that has something messed up with him, and you're kind of friends with him because he means really well, but mm-hmm. he's slightly retarded, you know. <laughs> but you just kind of feel. But then you always feel like that awkward, like you know, should I be like, yeah, you're doing good, yeah, I'm I'm friends with you, but you kind of feel bad about yourself because you really don't know how to handle that friendship. That is Johnny Depp's Mad Hatter to me, you know, like ever like the Mad Hatter and all of his tea party goers are only as lovable as the lovable, goofy geriatrics in an old folks' home. You know, where you go there, you don't mind spending time with them, but there's just, I mean, there's just like that weird kind of like, uns- not. Like I mean, you're happy to leave. You're happy to leave. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing that made the cartoon so lovable, is you have memorable characters in their zany, and you can add the uh, the, the problems and the issues that are brought up, some of them that are brought up in these remakes, but at the same time, you have to you have to give us a reason to kind of care about the characters, and the one reason that they or the one path that they shouldn't have taken was with backstory, um, and like I mentioned before, the cartoon works because it's not a complex dynamic. Uh, it's not filled with complex and dynamic narratives, but it's fun. In the cartoon, there were more uh, more believable stakes. Again, like Alice worried that she's not going to ever leave Wonderland until she wakes up in the forest and it becomes a dream. You know, it's the, it's the atmosphere. Uh, uh, you know, is in, in the current movies, I guess isn't unique or fun and it really needs to be unique or fun to make all this stuff believable but honestly when it comes down to it we don't need all the backstory the cheshire cat doesn't need a backstory we don't need another reason why we should actually have uh feelings good nice feelings toward the red queen it's kind of like they're they're taking the path and it's obvious that there should never be an evil bad guy but you know, like everybody or, or makes that, mistakes. Or, you know, or or like all is forgiven for some reason. Like at the um, kind of all right. So the end of X Men, 
Apocalypse, right? Magneto just kind of helps rebuild the school. Sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it yet for some reason. Um, X, uh, you know, Magneto and Jean put the school back together, you yeah. know, with their special mind powers and magnet powers. And uh, then uh, Xavier's like, you sure you don't want to stick around? He's like, ha no, see you later. And then just walks <laughs> away. Never mind, he's like responsible for destruction of half the fucking world. Right? Single-handedly destroyed damn near half the fucking known world. He's just like, see you later, Charles. Have a nice day. Take it easy, buddy. All right. Have a nice one. We'll see you in the next movie. And then off he goes, right? No, there was like no recompense. There was nothing to say you did wrong and need to make up As for that. As he's turning around his wheelchair, we'll be friends forever. <laughs> yeah. And, and he just walks away. And it's the same thing. So here in this movie, again, spoiler alert. Um, we've, we've come to find out that, um, the, the Red Queen doesn't have to take responsibility for any of her actions because her sister lied when they were nine. I mean, you know, okay, hang on a second. Your sister lied. She shouldn't have lied. Fine. But you are completely responsible for the, you know, for killing people, chopping off all these people's heads and ruining so many lives and creating this thing that got you banished. And then there's no mention of any of the banishment or what's going on or anything like that, except for one brief little cameo scene where the knave is dead. Uh, he's got the dagger in it or the sword in his chest, and it's just a skeleton. Oh, so yeah, he does kind of make an appearance. Yeah. But they don't explain anything of that, how she got away, none of that stuff. And yet, again, all is that's all I ever wanted was an apology. And they hug, and that's the end of it. Like... Seriously? I want to do that. Can I go on a, you know, m murderous rampage for 30 years or destroy half the world and everything and just go... Ruin lives. Sorry! <laughs> you know? <laughs> or just go, you sure you won't stick around? No, that's okay. I'll see you next time, though. I'm sure something will piss me off later. Um, it just, yeah, just, again, story is so important. So, I don't know. Where, where do you land on the movie there, sir? Two out of five. It, they went way too big. Way too big. Way too big. All right. Well, there you go. So, Tim clearly did not like it. I'm giving it a bit of a better grade, but not much. And I think that concludes the movie for the week. So, uh, next week, when we meet again... Because <laughs> we're not... We're totally not going to record the next episode right now. Um... We got two more movies for next week. The movies for next week are The Do-Over and Kindergarten Cop 2. And yes, there is a sequel to Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I think we're on to the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! All right. Well, the music you've been listening to for our intros and outros, of course, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can even follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Matt, I get to say this. See you next week. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again. 
very soon. <laughs> <laughs> like, in mere minutes, depending on how they listen to it. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.